Tonight, Wall Street hates any kind of unknown, and we just got a big one. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec. Just when the world was starting to emerge on the other side of the Delta variant and open back up, now we got something else to worry about called Omicron. Joining me now to discuss Omicron's potential impact on markets is Brian James, certified financial planner here at Allworth and a regular on Simply Money, and Andy Stout, our chief investment officer, managing over $12 billion from right here in Cincinnati. Andy, this caught everybody by surprise. On on Friday, there was an announcement about the Omicron variant. Apparently, it's a, a little bit more than just a minor concern. And investors were running around like their hair was on fire, selling left and right. Um, that was a heck of a sell-off we had on Friday. Talk to us a little bit about why the market did what it did on that news. Well, there's just a lot of uncertainty surrounding this variant. And when we look at, without getting into like the science behind it, there's a lot of mutations on this variant compared to the original and compared to the Delta variant. And this has a lot of people worried in the science community and medical community, community excuse me, uh, that this variant could be more contagious than the Delta variant, which was already extremely contagious, and possibly because of the mutations, more resistant to vaccines or antibodies from previous infections. Now, the bright side, Steve, is that the symptoms appear to be relatively mild. Uh, so when we look at that, you know, there there is some silver lining here. But the concern is, if we take this a step further, is if this mutation. Uh, if this variant mutates again into another variant that still maintains that vaccine and antibody resistance, but maybe the symptoms aren't so mild. So, Andy, I, th- I think the thing that everybody's worried about, obviously, you know, we, we certainly want to maintain everyone's health and everything. But the, the one thing that, uh, that that caused so many downstream effects was the shutdown. So how close are we thinking that we might be to something like that? Could that happen again? I, I doubt it happens here in the United States. I mean, there's going to be some travel restrictions. The U.S. has already said we're not going to be allowing any travelers from South Africa or neighboring countries. And that's because that's where the first case was uh, identified there. And we think that's where it's really concentrated most. But with all that being said, it's already gotten out. I mean, there's uh, confirmed cases in Canada, Hong Kong, Australia, parts of Europe. So it's out there. It's probably here in the United States. I don't think we'll see too much in terms of economic lockdowns, though, uh, as a result. So that's going to be good for the economy. uh, But that doesn't mean people won't, you know, look inward and say, yeah, maybe I'm not going out right now. Well, and I think that's going to be the the biggest immediate impact is travel may um, may be restricted somewhat. I, I mean, we're we're already looking at uh, some flights from some countries being uh, barred, and I think it's going to cause more than a few people to reexamine their vacation plans until we get over this hump. I, I mean, my concern, uh, Andy, is that you know we're always going to have different variants, and I, I think we're going to have to learn how to live with this. But the first stocks to get hit on Friday were uh, were airline stocks, as, as you can imagine. Do you see this impacting other industries besides the airline industry? Well, if it does get a little bit worse, yes, absolutely. Uh, where you would see it, I think, is more in your service-oriented industries. So because people are going to be staying inside rather than sure. going out, uh, they're going to you know take the brunt of it. And obviously, anything tourism-related. Now, as of right now, I think it's way too early to really jump the gun and make any sort of bold economic predictions. We don't know hardly anything about this. And when we focus longer term, you know, 
things are still in our favor. I mean, there's still low recession risk. Stocks do tend to go higher over the longer run. Yeah, there's short-term noise. We just don't know enough about this variant yet to really either run for the hills or buy uh, as much stocks as what's in your financial plan. With all that said, though, you know, we're not going to try to you know, time the market here, you know, we're going to be focused on areas that we think might add some value in the long run. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Brian James, and we're talking with Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Uh, Andy, let's pivot a little bit and and talk about the Federal Reserve. Um, Jerome Powell uh, is going to remain, uh, at least it looks that way, uh, chairman of our nation's bank, the Federal Reserve. Tell me what you think is going to be the course of action. Is it more of the same? Are there any concerns that you have? Well, yeah, Powell was uh, renominated for the federal chair last week, and so he's going to be in there for the next four years. And I do think it'll probably be more of the same. He's relatively dovish uh, compared to other members of the Federal Reserve. And what that means when we say someone is dovish, it means they're uh, less inclined to hike interest rates uh, too quickly to fight off inflation. They want to take a more measured approach to make sure we have full employment. Now, despite that uh, view of Jerome Powell, inflation is out there and it is sticking around for at least, you know, the second half of next year uh, when we look at everything that's going on. And the Fed is in the process of what's called tapering, which means they're reducing the amount of bonds they're buying uh, to They've been buying these bonds to encourage economic growth. They're pulling back on those purchases, Steve, uh, in in order to try to fight off inflation. And the sooner they can stop buying bonds, that's when rate hikes come into question. And it looks like the Federal Reserve might want to even speed up that tapering or that reduction of bond prices. Andy, I'm getting a little sense of deja vu here because I remember having this exact same conversation right at the end of 2019 before any of us had ever heard of COVID. Inflation was about to or, or, or uh, uh, interest rates were about to, to drop possibly the next year. Well, then that all went out the window when we had a very brief and very strange recession. So are we how does COVID factor into this? Could we be looking at that's uh, at, at them delaying that tapering process further? I don't think they will delay it uh, as of right now. I mean, the Fed's certainly uh, walking a fine line here, right? Uh, they're getting increasingly worried about inflation, and but there is chatter of and, and there is a chatter of speeding up tapering. However, if we have an econ- negative economic impact from COVID or any variants that do come around, they don't really aren't, aren't going to be able to stimulate the economy like they normally would because inflation is creeping higher and higher and it's at relatively uncomfortable levels. So they might reduce the speed of their rate hikes, uh, but that doesn't mean that they will actually introduce stimulus into the economy. If we look at what's being priced into the market, I mean, on Wednesday of last week, there was almost three hikes priced into the market for next year, three uh, quarter point rate hikes in 2022. Uh, on Friday, though, after we had that big sell-off, what we saw was basically 
uh, two rate hikes were being priced in. And things have kind of stabilized a little bit, uh, but we're still looking at two rate hikes being priced in next year. So it's less tightening, but that's not stimulus. I, I'm kind of uh, concerned, Andy, about the opposite problem, that they're acting too slow. I, I mean, I, I remember the late 70s, early 80s, when uh, inflation got totally out of hand. The only thing people remember now are high CD rates, and they look back on it fondly. And I remember, okay, my first mortgage was 11%, and that was good. That was on the tail end as things yep. were starting to, to come back down. Um, now I'm, you know, we're, we're looking at the highest inflation numbers in over over 30 years. Is the Fed reacting too slow, do you, do you think? Are, are the rate hikes too slow in coming? Well, you're not alone in, in that uh, sentiment there, Steve. There's a few people, even including some on the Fed, that think they need to be a little bit more aggressive when it comes yeah. to hiking rates. Uh, but when we look at the big picture, you know, it's still a lot of goods inflation, supply chain problems. And we are seeing a little bit of improvement in the supply chain just in you know how things are getting processed. So there is some improvement there. So that's the, the good side of it. But we're far uh, from normal in any uh, realm of it. But part of the reason is that the just the demand for goods, think about things you're buying for your home, uh, which has seen a big surge uh, in spending. And consumers have really added a lot more uh, spending relative to services than what they used to spend. So like prior to COVID, as an example, uh, consumers were spending 34% of their total spending on goods. That jumped up to 40% almost immediately uh, as opposed to services. So 40% goods, 60% services. That may seem like a trivial jump, but that that was that's billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars is what that really amounts to. And our supply chain was just not set up to handle that logistically. Fortunately, uh, you know, we're starting to get through that a little bit, but we're still way behind the curve. So, Andy, one other thing I've been thinking about is, yeah, we had a pullback uh, uh, last Friday in reaction to the COVID news. Um, but I know we've just been talking to clients uh, over the past uh, you know, 18 months or so. While we've been through some crazy times, uh, the market has gone up and people just plain have more money than they've ever had before. Is it time to start thinking about a correction? What, what, what might a correction look like? What are those kind of things? Uh, how does that look if that happens? Well, corrections are normal. It's just, I kind of think of it as the cost of investing and saving for your retirement. There is no free lunch. You don't just get handed money. You have to have the the wherewithal to stand in there and accept that volatility. And if you're having trouble losing sleep at night, you probably don't have the right investment mix. You want to make sure you have a balance of stocks and bonds uh, that is going to help you achieve your financial goals uh, while still allowing you to sleep at night. And if we do get a correction and we probably will because they seem to happen on a relatively regular basis. The question is, when does it happen? So we're never going to try to predict when a correction might happen. But when it does happen, you know, what we might see is a pullback of around 10 to 15 percent. That's pretty normal. Happens almost every year. In fact, if you look back to 1980, the average drop in any given calendar year has been about 13 to 14 percent. But despite that, the stock market has still ended up higher 83% of those years since 1980. Great perspective, as always, from Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Here's a Simply Money point. The biggest news markets are currently responding to, yeah, it might be the Omicron variant, but too little is known about it at this moment. So rushing to make an investment decision based on trickles of information, watch out. That could backfire on you. 
Can't listen to Simply Money every night? Subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money, on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcasts. Coming up in three minutes, why we really hope none of your holiday packages were being shipped through Alabama. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac. Coming up at 634, you might have done everything right when it comes to money, but if you've missed planning for this one critical thing, it might not matter what you've done up to that point, what you need to know. Well, Brian, I'm hoping the packages that you've ordered aren't coming through Alabama because uh, uh, they might not have gotten where they're supposed to. Joining me now is Brian James, certified financial planner here at Allworth and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, if you're tracking your shipment and it says Ravine in Alabama, uh, you might have a problem. Steve, don't blow my cover here. I was going to use this as an excuse for procrastination. So, uh, so about, about, about three or 400 packages were found in the bottom of a ravine outside of Hayden and Alabama. And nobody knows where these came from. This is about 30 miles north of Birmingham. Uh, and it doesn't appear that you know, when, when I first read this, I thought, OK, there's going to be a bunch of empty boxes because somebody dumped the truck back there and just took all the valuable stuff to fence it or do whatever. But that does not appear to be the case. Uh, there are packages down there. FedEx is sending lots of trucks and drivers to go dig them out of the ravine and hopefully get them onto their uh, onto their final destination so that Christmases aren't <laughs> ruined. But interesting to uh, to figure out exactly what the what the cause of this was. We don't know much yet, but uh, it'll sure be fun to find out. Well, what, what amazes me is uh, FedEx is just fantastic about tracking packages. I mean, it, it will say when it was picked up. Uh, it, it'll tell you exactly what location it's at at any moment during the course of the day. Their packages are constantly being scanned. I just I can't get over FedEx didn't know hey, there's a problem with this one shipment or this group of packages. And apparently it's been sitting there for more than, you know, just a couple of minutes. Right. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll, it'll be, uh, the, the, I'm sure they're going to change some processes around, around this. Cause this kind of defeats the purpose of, uh, of, well, of uh, on-time delivery here. Yeah. When it absolutely positively has to get there overnight. Oh boy. And not, not this time your parents, your children, and maybe your financial advisor, your advisor could be one of the most important people in your life. So how do you make sure you get it right and find the perfect fit for you? I, I mean, Brian, we're on the advisor side of it. So, you know, it's hard to put yourself in, in the other person's shoes. But I, I know we just had to replace our roof, and, and we did it the old-fashioned way. We, you know, talked to different people that had roofs replaced, and, and our next-door neighbor just could not say enough good things about the roofer and the job they did. So that's that's who ultimately we went with uh, on that. It's not quite that easy on finding a financial advisor, is it? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's extremely nerve wracking, right? So, you know, the, the, the financial advisor to have the, the right kind of relationship with an advisor, uh, then it's it's not too far off of having a doctor, right? You're going to tell your doctor your some of your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets. And if you're going to choose a financial advisor, that's a person that you're basically going to dump your life savings into a wheelbarrow and deliver it to their front door and say, hey, here, please deal with my mess. So you want to make sure that you trust the person that you go through a process and, 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 and come to the right conclusion, the best fit for you. Well, and I, I think the problem is, do you walk up to your neighbor and say, hey, how do you invest your money? Who are you using? What do they charge? I mean, these are awkward questions. You can't, you know, it, you can't really ask that specific of a question. I think the best you can do when you're trying to get a referral is, hey, who do you deal with? Are you happy? And that's not that's not really getting to the bottom of, hey, is this a good advisor? 
Yeah, I, I think the most important question people can ask is, does when you're talking to your, your friends and neighbors and whoever, does your advisor answer the questions that you are asking? That's yeah. a very common, you know, when, when we bring on a new client here at Allworth, uh, a lot of times that's one of the reasons they're looking around is because their advisor talks to them about, you know, here's what the market did last quarter. Here's what it's doing this quarter. And, oh, financial plan. Now you'll be fine. You got plenty of money. Don't worry about it. Well, that doesn't answer any questions that people are asking. And people walk out of those meetings feeling like they know less than they did before before it began so that's kind of why we follow the process that we do so you want to when you're talking to a financial advisor again make sure that their approach to financial planning is what you are looking for i no no question about it and i'll add one to that when you get down to two or three names and you go out and interview them and and make no mistake about it it's an interview they might want your business but you're wondering okay do they pass muster am i going to be comfortable i think one of the first things you should ask them is how you get paid if they waffle on that just walk out the door um that should be as transparent as possible but you know just keep in mind who's doing the talking are they trying to sell you their services or are they listening to what your answers are are they asking you what's important about life what what are you using your money for what's your goal how realistic is it that you want to retire at a certain age i i, I mean somebody who listens more than talks i think is going to be at least someone who should get a second interview how, how do you feel yeah, and I think so too. And the, uh, the the other big question he asks is whether they are a fiduciary. So yeah. if someone is a fiduciary, that means that they have to be able to prove in a court of law that they gave advice or took whatever actions that they did because it's in your best interest, not in theirs. The only way they can get there is by asking you questions and trying to understand what your situation is. And they should do a lot more listening than they, they do talking. So if somebody is a fiduciary, that means that they always have to be able to, to justify the decisions that they've made and the advice they've, give, they've given based on what your situation is. That's extremely important. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Brian James, and, and we're talking about what you should be looking for if you're considering hiring a financial advisor. I, I'll, I'll throw out another one out there, and this is something I don't dive in myself, but how about taking a look at their social media? Oh, yeah, sure. If somebody out there makes bad decisions in their personal lives, there's a good chance that that's going to leak over into their uh, their professional life. And you see, we don't have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, so it, 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 there's nothing wrong with uh, looking into their history on Facebook and you know Instagram and wherever else you can find things. That information is all public and it's all out there. And uh, there, there's there there's, shouldn't be any hesitation in digging that up. Now, the more traditional paths, too, you can look at the regulatory body websites. You can look at uh, there's a site called Broker Check that's uh, run by an organization called FINRA, F-I-N-R-A. That's a government agency that monitors uh, um, financial advisors for complaints and things like that. If they're a certified financial planner, you can go to the CFP board website at cfp.net uh, and look up uh, their history if there's ever been any kind of uh, discipline or anything like that. Lots of resources out there, and everybody should use them when making this decision. Well, and I, I think you've got to be honest with yourself, too, and why are you looking for a new advisor? Um, if you are very performance-oriented, I'm not saying returns shouldn't matter, but if that's the only thing that matters to you and your first question is, have you beaten the indexes over the past year, three years, and five years, which, which I've heard? Um, uh, maybe you're a little bit unrealistic with your expectations. I, I mean, uh, getting a return on your investment, yeah, that that's important. But making sure everything that you're investing in 
is coordinating with your financial plan and allowing you to retire at uh, whatever age it is that you've set. I, I think they all play together and performance is just one area. Uh, I'll give you a great example. If you find that you've been changing advisors every two to three years because they're just not making you what you think you should be making, maybe the problem isn't with the other person. Maybe that you've got to take a look at your expectations, and they might be a little bit unrealistic. Here's a Simply Money point. Finding the right financial advisor for you could have a huge impact on how likely you are to reach your money and retirement goals. Coming up, one major thing you need to consider when you get close to retirement. We'll break it down for you. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. Listening to Simply Money, I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. You know, it's not a fun part of your financial planning, but a piece of it that can't be ignored is long-term care insurance. What happens if you get sick later in life, and, and how do you make sure that you and your family, your you and your spouse, are covered? Joining us tonight is our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Rackman. Hey, Mark, this is something that, again, people don't like thinking about, but it's something that every single one of us needs to address in in one way or another. And I think the key is looking at long-term care insurance and deciding whether it makes sense for you or not. Well, it is. And it's a a big black box of mystery for most folks, uh, as is a lot of insurance. Uh, People don't really understand how it works. Okay. And so let's start with, you've got five tips on how to buy it. And let's keep in mind too, as we're talking about this, Mark, that there used to be dozens of insurance companies that offered these policies. You had all kinds of options. Not so anymore. The marketplace is very limited. So how do you begin? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is to figure out whether or not you're the right profile for long-term care insurance. And I think the place to start is by deciding whether or not you can qualify, either you or your spouse, whether you can qualify for Medicaid without impoverishing your spouse. Uh, If so, long-term care insurance is probably not necessary. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea, Amy, because long-term care insurance will always improve your prospects uh, for admission to a quality facility. But it's not necessary if you don't have the risk of being impoverished by it. If you are looking or planning for long-term care markets, almost the people that should be looking at these policies are those that fall in the middle, right? You have too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough set aside to self-insure, meaning uh, if you or your spouse had to go into a long-term care facility, first of all, these are insanely pricey. You're looking at, what, probably six figures over the course of a year? Yeah, probably between ten dollars and $12,000 a month at this yes. point for the uh, decent facilities. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. That's a hundred to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. So if you don't have that kind of money set aside where you can handle that, then Mark, wouldn't you say it's those who fall in the middle who probably need to start looking at this? Well, that's exactly right. So uh, if you're if you're if you're below that middle, you may have less uh, less exposure because you have less assets to lose. And on the other side of the extreme, if you have a lot of money, you can uh, you can afford it. You can self-insure we call it, which means you can afford to pay for care. Um, You know, the average nursing home resident lives about 2.6 years. If you can afford to pay for nursing home care for, let's say, three or four years without threatening the financial security of your spouse, um, then you you may choose to self-insure. Which, going by the numbers that you just said, that's $300,000 plus. 
out of pocket for one of you. And, and Mark, what often happens is one person needs to go into a long-term care facility, but also the other person needs to be able to stay home, maintain the house, cover bills. So there's a lot to think about here. Well, that's exactly right. And deciding whether or not you have enough money to self-insure depends in large part on what your income is. Uh, you know, many of us have uh, that are self-employed or have jobs that don't come with a pension uh, we have to have money in the bank because Social Security is not enough to live on. Other folks have jobs that come with with good pensions, and so they have substantial monthly income. That reduces how much money you need in the bank to cover long-term care. All right, so Mark, when you're thinking about these, um, and especially if you're married, how do you decide, uh, do we need one policy? Do we need two policies here? Because these premiums are not cheap. In fact, th- the fact that there's fewer and fewer insurance companies offering them means that the price of these have been going up over the past few years, somewhat astronomically in some cases. Well, that's right. So the question is, can you get by with just one policy? And to do that, you've got to start by assessing your family history, your own personal medical history, and your financial profile. Uh, Let me give you an example, Amy. Uh, If I'm retired from a career in the military and I'm in good health, I've got VA benefits and decent savings, I may choose just to insure myself uh, with the idea that if my wife goes into the nursing home, I know that my VA benefits, I know that my my military pension, all of those things are safe and that I'm not at risk to be impoverished. Or I may choose to just insure myself, knowing that if, that, uh, if I can cover any expenses I may have, that it won't wipe out my wife. Um, it all comes down to what is the risk, and can I can I afford can I self insure for one person but not two? Mark Reckman, our estate planning expert, joining us tonight with some great insight on long term care. Do you need an insurance policy? How do you go about it? And Mark, also, where do you go? Right, where do you go to find a policy? And also know and have confidence that that person isn't trying to sell you something that you don't need, that they're making a huge commission off of, but that it really is the right thing for you. No, that's a tough one, Amy, but I'm a fan of using independent uh, insurance agents, uh, not ones that are captive to a particular company. Um, They do a better job of comparing policies and benefits. They do a better job of customizing the policy to fit your specific circumstances. That makes a lot of sense. And also, before you go in, do your research, right? I mean, make sure that you know what you're talking about, what you think your best options are. Not that this person can't educate you and help you figure out maybe what's truly best for you, but you don't want to go in having no clue about what's needed or what costs might be. Well, there's a learning curve to this. And if you can get a head start on that learning curve, by doing a little reading, find a Consumer Reports article or some bias, some non-bias source who can describe how long-term care policies work, learn a little of the terminology, then when you meet with an agent, you'll be able to talk their language. For example, um, you need to know what assisted care means and whether or not it's covered. You need to know what in-home care means and is that covered. There's something we call an elimination period. That's the period of time that you have to pay for yourself before the insurance policy kicks in. If that's a short period, your premiums are higher. If you can afford, for example, if I want to reduce my premiums, I may take a six-month elimination period. In other words, I'm willing to assume responsibility for the first six months of institutionalization, and if I have a longer elimination period, my premiums will go down. 
So you're essentially kind of self-insuring in the beginning uh, and then covering on the back end the fact that if you're in there for a longer period of time, the long-term care insurance will kick in there. You know, you know, Mark, you have been doing this for a long time. And one of the things I love about having you on the show is the wealth of experience that you bring uh, and also the, the stories about the, the clients that you've worked with. Anything that come to mind as far as uh, for people who just maybe think like, I'm going to blow this off. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, well, bad situations best. that people have come into by not planning for this. Yes. And, and the answer to that is that when you search for a nursing home, what you're going to find out is that the market changes and that uh, the market in Cincinnati, for example, was very, very different 10, 12, 15 years ago. Mm. Cincinnati overbuilt nursing homes and nursing homes were looking all over for residents. It was easier to get into a nursing home. That's changed now. The market has caught up. And in Cincinnati, we have a much more balanced market. So when you go shopping for a quality facility, if you have a long-term care policy in your pocket, you're going to have better choices. You're going to like the facilities that are interested in you. And I've seen that over and over and over. Um, so long-term care insurance isn't always just about the risk. Sometimes it's used as a way to gain access to a better facility. That's great access. Great insights tonight from our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Reckman. If you have not considered long-term care insurance and maybe you're getting in your 50s, closing in on retirement, definitely something worth thinking about. Some great tips to consider there. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac. Coming up, how a shortage of glass bottles could impact your holiday festivities. Zillow made a bet on flipping houses that ended up being a major, major flop. But that might not be such a bad thing here in the tri-state if you're on the hunt for a new house. Joining me now is Brian James, certified financial planner here at Allworth and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, I didn't even know Zillow was flipping houses. I, I thought it was just a tool for valuing houses. Right. And, and that's how it started out. I remember going back, I don't know, 15, 20 years uh, in, in a previous life when Zillow came out, it was just a great way to, you know, to, to look at your house and treat it like a stock. You could go see what it's worth today and was it worth yesterday, all based on an algorithm that just looks at a whole bunch of things such as, uh, you know, your normal comparables in the area and all kinds of different things. That, so what it had recently become, though, um, was an outfit that was going to basically try to flip homes on a huge scale. Uh, you know, and just, just like I love, just like uh, Lucy used to say on I Love Lucy, we're going to make it up on volume. Let's just do so many of these that we don't have to, uh, we don't have to make that much on any one of them. But if we do enough of them, we'll make, make a bunch of money. That was the plan, but it didn't work <laughs> out so well. No, no, they, um, they've made some uh, major blunders here in flipping houses. I started out great. I, I mean, they're, the first quarter they did this, their profits were double what they were expecting. But second quarter, uh, not so much. They got right, killed. Yeah. And yeah, and, and a lot of it had they were they were looking to make money from the transaction fees and from doing uh, side services such as the title insurance uh, and all that kind of thing. They weren't really looking to necessarily make a profit on the on the flip. However, uh, with all the craziness that happened in the market, I'm sure that was on their on their minds in terms of what we can do in within 2020. So well, they they've actually, been here there, in the, the tri-state. I, I I mean they they actually own quite a number of homes around here. They do indeed, and, and there's a lot of activity. There's a house on my street that uh, was was purchased in 2013 for low 300s, and uh, it is was purchased by Zillow about two months ago 
for about 420,000. It is now currently showing as an offer. And I can see all this on the Zillow site. This is all public information because they own it. It's now on offer, has received an offer for 410. So they're going to eat $10,000 apparently on this house <laughs> to get out from under. And that's not the only one, is it, Steve? They, so they own 359 homes in Butler, Claremont, Hamilton, and Warren County. That's about $96 million yeah. worth of real estate just here in the tri-state area. Well, and, and and they're so frustrated with it, how it's not working out that they just said, we're dumping all our homes, which is okay. I suppose it's good because one of the reasons home prices have been going up dramatically, at least here in the tri-state, is um, there's no inventory. I, I mean, there aren't many houses for sale. Normally, it's, you know, nine months, a year's inventory, and, and we're, we're talking, you know, maybe 60 days, may, maybe even less. So they're going to dump a whole bunch and... and Maybe that'll free things up locally, but it's only, even though it's a large number, it's only 1% of the local inventory. So I don't think it's going to free things up all that much. Yeah, it could be a good opportunity, though. If you are if you are uh, in, in the home buying mood, Zillow is looking to get out from under these things. So you might start start your search there and see what they've got in their inventory. So uh, it was a big move for them. They're, they actually did lay off people. People are losing jobs yeah. over this, too. They're going to dump about 25% of their workforce uh, in, as they sell these 7,000 homes to get out from under. Well, it's 2,000 jobs. I mean, 2,000 people are out of work because this idea that they had that they thought was going to be just a huge moneymaker, it, it, it's not working out for them, and it's crushed their stock. Their their market capitalization, which just means what's the value of the stock times the number of shares. Their market capitalization was at forty eight billion dollars. It's dropped in the last couple months to sixteen billion dollars. Still a big number, but I mean it's literally about a quarter of where it was at. I, I mean this this is something that hurt them substantially, and and it just goes to show you that you know flipping houses. Yeah, you might be able to make a little bit of money on transaction costs and title insurance and stuff like that if you're as big as Zillow. But it still boils down that you got to get a good contractor. You got to you, you got to get uh, a low priced work done to be able to do the improvements and resell it. You've got to time the market, and that's a local local decision. I don't think any two markets are exactly the same, and and Zillow found that out the hard way. Yeah, they did, and and one of the one of the things that's costing him here is uh, we we heard some examples of uh, houses that were set up a certain way. Uh, for example, one of them had a pool, and the first thing Zillow did was fill it in as they took ownership of it, on the assumption that people don't want pools anymore. Well, if you're a real <laughs> estate agent in this area, you know people are dying for swimming pools yeah. because we all went through a a phase where if I can't leave my house anymore, then I'm going to make it something I really like. Therefore, it's now hard to get a swimming pool installed. So had they been had maybe a little more boots on the ground, they could know that that's not something they should have gotten gotten rid of there. Well, yeah, and and, and that's one of those things. If you want to get a pool, it's it's probably going to be it could be two years uh, waiting list. I, I mean, a lot of people want to get them in. So you know, if you're going to fill in a pool and and think that that's going to help you sell the property, might sell it sooner but at a lower cost. And if you want to get a pool put in, it might be a two-year wait. Here's a Simply Money point. A hard lesson for real estate giant Zillow might just bring the major break some potential home buyers have been needing to score a home in this competitive market. Coming up, can we blame this one on the Grinch? Why you might not be able to count on your favorite adult beverage this holiday season? You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovec. Brian, this is serious. I, I'm not talking about supply chain stuff that, you know, little things like chips and, and computers and cars and that sort of thing. We're talking about 
liquor and wine bottles. There, there is a major disruption going on in that business here. Uh, so let's talk about it. Joining me now is Brian James, certified financial planner here at Allworth, regular on Simply Money. Brian, we've been talking about supply chain issues forever, but it, it's hitting home. I mean, liquor bottles, wine bottles. Can't get them. Right. It's getting 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 a little too close for comfort here, right? So uh, so this is going on across the country. We've got our bourbon makers down in Kentucky, and you've got the wine the the wine vineyards out in California and everywhere in between. Uh, the supply chain is, is is causing a real issue here, and it's not the production of the alcohol itself; it's the bottles. It's getting the glass. Something you never think about. You know? Exactly. You know, it's just I've got a liquor cabinet full of it, but uh, I'm, I'm going to need to ration over, over the holiday season here uh, because there's an awful lot of glass bottles stuck out there on container ships or, or stuck on trucks uh, waiting to get dragged across the country. And it, it's the same problem we've been talking about all year long with everything else out there. We simply can't get things from point A to point B. And it is hitting the liquor industry at the worst time of year, isn't it, Steve? It is. I mean, it's the holidays. This is when you, if you're going to give a gift of liquor, you're going to get something a little fancy and usually comes in a nice bottle. You learn all different things during the pandemic about where stuff comes from. I, I, I mean, who knew that all the ibuprofen in the world was coming from China? You know, I'm a regular consumer doing the stupid things I do with my body at my age. But, you know, here, here we're talking about a lot of the liquor bottles and wine bottles are imported. We make very little, apparently, uh, of that type of glassware in this country. And, and you know, it's we're dealing with the exact same things the other industries are. When a shipping container from China or from, you know, parts unknown uh, normally costs $6,000, and now all of a sudden they're $20,000, I'm reading about... Some winemakers are actually air freighting. They're actually chartering aircraft to bring wine bottles over so that they can bottle their production and get it sold. I, I mean, it's just one of the things one more industry has to deal with. And, and, you know, at this time of year, they want to make sure they book the sales. Right. So if you're one of those people that gets that UK uh, uh, branded bottle of Maker's Mark every year, you might want to branch out a little bit. That may or may not even be on the shelves. So there's over 16,000 different types of, of, of alcohol-based products uh, out there. So this could be a year to, to maybe try something else, get a little bit outside your comfort zone, simply because your favorite taste isn't out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, so far, no price increases, but I don't see that change or I, I don't see that sticking around that much longer because if it's costing them that much more to bottle, they have to pass it along at some point. They're not going to eat their their uh, their profit just to make sure they get stuff sold. I mean, you know, it's a business like anything else. And it, yeah, it's starting to force these distilleries to make different decisions. So uh, there's there's a distillery called Castle and Key out of Frankfurt, Kentucky, and they've had to go find a new glass supplier. And that's not a simple thing, you know. For any any of you who work in any kind of a business, it's not a little thing to change part of your part of your entire process. So they don't they're not even ordering six months in advance anymore. They're now going two years ahead of schedule because they don't yeah. want to go through this again. So they're having to spend dollars that probably they would prefer to uh, to, to spend differently now to buy things so that they. Can, they can avoid this problem should it pop up again in 2023. Yeah, and I think they're also looking, instead of overseas, they're looking for uh, producers that are at least on this continent so that they can ship by rail to uh, their production uh, facilities uh, in, in the States. So, you know, they're, 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 there's workarounds in every industry, and this is just one more example. You've been listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station.